According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we are uh, ready to tackle verse 11. As we uh, spent the last couple of Sundays looking at verses 9 and 10, how it was fitting proper, appropriate for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. And uh, the necessity of the cross and the necessity of the sufferings to equip Christ for the cross. These are deep, deep principles that uh, if we don't understand today, we should at least Write these verses down and make our notes and uh, chew on it. Put it on the back burner and consider in the days and weeks and months and years ahead that uh, the necessity of the passion, the necessity of the suffering is what equipped him to be the substitute. And we're going to see some more principles on this. What qualifies him to be a high priest? And it gets spelled out in uh, additional verses here, which we're going to see uh, in starting in verse 11 and even in verse 14 and uh, reasons why, even verse 17, the reason why it is a have to. It says in verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And so without these have to's being experienced by our Savior in his humanity, then he would not be equipped in the way the Father designed him to be equipped identifying with us, understanding and knowing and interceding on our behalf. It required him to experience what we experience in order to be the kinsman redeemer redeemer that he became. And so uh, a lot of this is, is deep and yet a lot of this hopefully is, we'll, we'll teach it on a on a simple basis where even if you just got saved this morning or just got saved very recently, that it's going to be clear, uh, clear enough to appreciate that we have a such a savior that we have such a high priest, that we have such a friend that knows what we're going through and one that uh, sticketh closer than a brother. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon him for his faithfulness to lead us in the truth this morning. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you thankful for your truth, thankful for the blessings that we have to assemble together calling upon your faithfulness, Father, to set aside distractions and to humble us, to open the eyes of our understanding to the truth and the power of your word. And Father, there are uh, pastors and churches all over this country that are meeting right now, including uh, B3. We want to pray for Bob and Elvira as they drive to Olympia through the snow. Father, uh, Texas boy's not used to driving in the snow, Father, but get him, uh, get them where they're headed, Father, as uh, He is your servant this morning at Grace Redeemer Bible Church and pray for the message there as well. Uh, We pray for our message here and uh, thankful for your grace provision and uh, looking forward to feasting upon the truth that you've supplied. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Well, we are looking at verses 11. We're going to take verse 11 through 13 as a unit and I'll put our slide up here as we get ready to, to deal with it. So it was proper, it was fitting, it was appropriate in verse 10. If he did not suffer, it would be inappropriate. It would be not pro- improper. It would be unfitting, all right? 
for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was necessary and proper. For, by way of explanation, both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And this is such a powerful dynamic. We want to get it for what it's saying here in this verse and then bring in uh, Psalm 22 that's being quoted and Isaiah 8 that's being quoted. There's a medley of, of two different passages, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8. And the author of Hebrews here is, is blending them together in an application showing in the necessity of our Savior to identify with us, to accept true humanity to take on the form of Adamic humanity in order to be our kinsman redeemer. This is what the plan of God is called for. And this is what's being executed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have very powerful themes. But we see, starting in verse 11, the tandem of the sanctifier and the sanctified. All right? And so we get that. And we can be thankful for that because we, who are we? We are the sanctified, right? We are the ones that benefit by the work that the sanctifier did and continues to do. All right. And yet it's more than just simply the object of a verb and the subject of a verb. There is the the close personal relationship between the bride and Christ, between the redeemed and the redeemer, the justified and the justifier, the sanctified and the sanctifier. You got that? And it's our tandem in Christ that's being our intimacy in Christ, the fact that we are brothers that is being spoken of here. And so as we deal with it, I think this is uh, very useful for us. We have a closeness between sanctifier and sanctified. And this is, uh, this is significant. This is powerful. And there's no other, you know, there's no religion on the earth. I almost said no other. There's no religion on earth that addresses it like biblical Christianity. All right? That this is our relationship with the Father in Christ that we are the sanctified ones. The closeness between sanctifier and sanctified. You know, think about all these hopeless people that view creation as, you know, God just created everything as a watchmaker and then stepped back and let it run and now he's not really involved, right? And so in, in that kind of a worldview, you can have a creator and a creation, but where's the intimacy in that compared to the sanctifier and the sanctified? particularly when you know what it cost him to be the sanctifier, the price he paid in order to go to the cross and sanctify each one of us, that he had to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And so there's a closeness with this. There's an intimacy with this. And it's the closest imaginable. That's the point that's going to be made here in the process of this study. Uh, it's beyond sanctifier, sanctify. There's also justifier, justified that we'll see. In fact, that comes out in Romans. Um, other, uh, other concepts there. The, the, the hymn that we sang, our maker, redeemer, and friend, right? Maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. And then put all those verses together and understand this closeness. It speaks to the identification which takes place through the kinsman Redeemer. If you've never done the doctrine of the kinsman redeemer, I recommend it. And it's a grace notes doctrine. And it's one that, that is a part of salvation doctrines and other aspects that we're going to be studying in the new year. So uh, stay tuned for that if you're not familiar with it. You know, the whole story in the book of Ruth teaches this story. 
The whole story in the book of Ruth is about redemption and the redemption of a kinsman. And uh, so let me get there. Joshua judges Ruth um, before you get to First and Second Samuel. Ruth chapter. You can read the whole book, but no time for that this morning. Let's just lock in on uh, on this. See, the point being, under Mosaic law, there was a requirement, and it was put in law so it could teach this doctrine. But it became a facet of their of their national identity and a facet of their. Uh, birthright as Jewish people uh, that they that they would accomplish this activity anytime a man died without children, and so his kinsmen would then be responsible to marry that widow and to father an offspring that would carry the name of the of the deceased brother that way that the name would continue so that you, your tribes and your clans and your families would continue in their inheritance in the Lord and so this, uh, this comes out and Naomi is instructing Ruth about this because Ruth is not native. She's not Jewish. She's a Moabite. And she's learning these things as she is, is coming to a saving knowledge and coming to identify with the covenant people. And this all happens here through these, uh, through these four chapters of the book of, uh, of Ruth. And so um, coming past the, uh, the early part of the chapter here where she makes herself available to him and communicates this. Um, he recognizes in verse 12, okay, in verse 11, my daughter, this is Boaz now speaking to Ruth, my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And this is uh, what we were looking at in Proverbs last Wednesday on the, the virtuous woman from Proverbs 31. Ruth is a woman of excellence, and Boaz would be honored, he would be delighted, he would be blessed to be her husband and to accept her as his wife and raise up a child for Elimelech. However, there's a problem. He says, now it is true, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And so this becomes a principle, and this is uh, codified under law, as a requirement, but it's, it's also a principle portraying the necessity of that maximum closeness. Our Savior, as the kinsman redeemer, had to fully identify with us in a maximum closeness. That means true humanity, that he had to have this body of flesh. He, and we'll talk about what the kenosis entails and how does God become man? How does the Word become flesh? And what was he like in that humanity? No sin, of course. No sin nature in Adam, but truly Adamic humanity. And these are concepts that uh, we'll have to look at as we proceed. And so just in the story now, in the book of Ruth, he's communicating that as a priority. There is a relative closer than I. So he says, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives, lie down until morning. And so we have a couple of things in view. We have the requirement, which is identification, which is nearness. But then beyond that, there's also volition. There is willingness. If the kinsman is not willing to be the redeemer, because there is a price to pay, and he may not be willing to pay that price. See, and that 
becomes an issue as well. Thank God, not only was Jesus Christ sinless and perfect, but he was also, so he was qualified, but he was also willing. He was willing to pay the price, even though that price entailed ultimate suffering and entailed death on the cross and entailed entailed accepting the infinite wrath of God for all uh, all of sin, all of angelic and human sin was cast upon him, see. And he volitionally accepted that. And so now, if uh, you're familiar with how the story turns out, we can get down to chapter 4, and uh, Boaz goes and he obtains. Uh, thankfully, you know what? It's, it's a grace provision. God's merciful. We don't know the knucklehead's name here in, in chapter 4. I just call him knucklehead, okay? Because clearly he's one of the biggest morons the whole Bible ever describes, he has a chance to marry Ruth and he says no. Think about that. She's a woman of excellence. And so uh, Boaz goes and he finds this close relative, this uh, kinsman, this redeemer, this Goel, of whom Boaz spoke, was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And turn aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. All right, it's time for a business meeting. This, uh, the elders of the city have to be in full witness of this. And this is when you're involving families and clans and the, the uh, political structure of the, of the city here. Everything's got to be above board. This all has to be publicly acknowledged as who is going to father the offspring is going to obtain this. And so, uh, and, I, and it's kind of curious to me, Boaz is a man of wisdom, and I think he uses an interesting approach where, you know, like a salesman, right? He, he sells one thing and then says, oh, and by the way, this is what also goes with the deal. <laughs> and that's curious to me. So um, I've never been in sales. Oh, I'd be terrible at sales, but uh, I, at least I recognize the maneuver because I've hated it when it's been used on me. So, uh, so they sit down and in, in Ruth 4.3, he says to the closest relative, he says, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. You know, and there's financial need and, and hardship and, and she just has to sell. And, and, but the point being is you have to keep the land and the clan and the tribe and the family. It's got to be redeemed. That's, that's the principle. So I thought to inform you, uh, see, because it belonged to our brother Elimelech, so I thought to inform you saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And so the possibility of another redeemer prior to the one who chooses to redeem it is interesting to me. And we've been speculating here in other classes too related to what might Adam have done to be the kinsman redeemer to reconcile Eve if in fact Adam had not fallen after Eve's temptation. But be that as it may, that's a what if we can't answer. Back to Boaz here. So Boaz said, uh, so the guy gets excited about it. And uh, so this, this kinsman says, yeah, I'll do it. I will redeem it. Sounds great. And he's got the opportunity to increase his land holdings at a pretty cheap rate here. He's willing to do it. But then Boaz said, now on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess. All right. So now he's already expressed a desire. He already said Yes. Now he's going to have to change his tune. And uh, because this also goes, there's, there's Ruth. 
and she's still of uh, childbearing years, and, and there's the son here that does not have the child, and the, a name has to be raised up. And beyond the fact that he's raising up a name to the deceased son, this is also the line of Christ we're talking about. <laughs> Think about it. How beautiful. And so uh, you must uh, take Ruth and raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And so then, notice, it's a new story. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Now think about that. So here's a guy, and he's not willing to pay a price because of his, what he thinks is his loss, what he thinks is what he wants or what he needs or his, his offspring and so forth, Okay. And it's curious to me because Jesus Christ is the total opposite of that. He wasn't thinking about himself when he went to the cross. And he counted what it would cost him and he counted it but nothing. He, he despised the shame. He endured the cross. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus despised the shame and, and endured the cross and is now seated at the Father's right hand. So you have to have a closeness, but you also have to have a willingness the willingness, and this is the key. Jesus Christ willingly was the sacrifice. You understand? So, um, he says, I can't do it. So, this is the custom now. He's got to have a sandal removed. It's a matter of shame to have the sandal removed and even to be spit on, uh, you know, this is the one whose sandal has been removed. This is the one that would not redeem his kinsman. And uh, so he submits to the shame of the sandal removal. And uh, then Boaz uh, has all the witnesses lined up and says, all right, I have bought, you are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech, all that belong to Chilion, all that belong to Malon. And I have acquired Ruth the Moatis, the widow of Malon, to be my wife. Now he may have had another wife, may have had other children, we don't know. See, but the firstborn is uh, going to be raised in the name of the deceased. So that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brother from the court of his birthplace. You are witness today. And so, and it's interesting too, um, we were looking at this in uh, Proverbs because of verse 11 has some vocabulary that, that shares with, uh, with Proverbs, uh, our Proverbs 14 chapter. Uh, all the people who were in the court and all the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And it's uh, the woman of wisdom, the woman of excellence builds her house in Proverbs 14.1, whereas the foolish woman tears it down with her own hands. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah, become famous in Bethlehem. Oh, isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> you know? Do you know, happen to know anything about Bethlehem and maybe somebody that gets born there someday? All right. This is, this is such a precious treasure in fact, at the end of the chapter, we have the lineage here. Ruth uh, is the, because uh, we got Obed and then Jesse and then David is the, uh, the direct descendants here through uh, Boaz and, uh, and Ruth. Anyway, there's a whole doctrine there, but it speaks to the closeness and the willingness. And that's what we have in Hebrews 2. We have both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Jesus is the sanctifier, we are the sanctified, but we are brethren, kinsmen, and he's not ashamed to call us kinsmen. In fact, he, he bore all the shame, willingly, gladly, so that he could be the firstborn of many brethren. 
And that's really the emphasis, the point of emphasis there in, uh, in Hebrews. On my way back, we can stop in Proverbs just because it's a, it's a beautiful verse. I've loved it for years. Proverbs 18, 24. I kind of let it slip a few minutes ago. Um, Proverbs 18, 24. <clears throat> There's a lot of things we can talk about in temporal life, a lot of things we can talk about and people get distracted. Uh, with, with family life. Verse 20 says, "With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied, and be satisfied with the product of his lips." Um, let me get past that. Verse 22, "He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is great. I recommend it. God says it's a blessing. Here we go. Um, the poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. Uh, so the aspects there. And then verse 24, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, <laughs> especially the ones that are asking for help all the time. But guess what? There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And how's this for a principle? beyond everything else in temporal life, beyond everything else in terms of marriage and neighbors and, and uh, everything else you deal with in, in secular life living, temp- temporal life living, is the true friend, the friend that sticks closer than her brother. <coughs> and I accept that as a Christological illusion. All right, back to Hebrews then. What do we have next? Jesus utters three I will statements. And he utters these I will statements as a synthesis of Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8. But Jesus utters three I will statements. Returning back to Hebrews 2, verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, saying. So when he calls us brethren, when does he do that? How does he do that? On what basis does he do that? Okay? And when he calls us brethren, he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. He is um, expressing a tremendous faith in God the Father in a, in a beautiful way. It's more than we, we usually give it credit for. This is not just uh, an emotionalism of fondness or, you know, hey, I love you, brother, or uh, this church, there's other churches do a whole lot more brother and sister than we do around here. Um, and sometimes it's so thick, you wonder, is this real? Um, at least I wonder. I'm a naturally suspicious fellow anyway. But um, there is a place for brother and sister. And, and by all means, before we depart today, you can, we can greet one another as brother and sister and say farewell, brother and sister, as much as we want between here in the parking lot, and that's, and we probably will, just in consequence of this. But um, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren, saying. So he uses the expression, but he's doing so in a quotation, in a citation of Old Testament truth. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So when Jesus calls us brethren, he's quoting Psalm 22. Do you think that's a big deal? You know, when Jesus went to the cross, 
he was quoting Psalm 22. Do you think that's a big deal? (laughs) All right. You know, and I think it's powerful. Let's look at Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, by the way, written by King David a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. And yet when you read it, you're thinking, no way. (laughs) Was, Was he an eyewitness? This had to have been written by somebody that saw it. Somebody that saw the cross. It's, it's so perfect. It's so, it's so exact. And it's written from the first person. It's actually written from the perspective of the, of the guy hanging on the cross. He says, my, my tongue is cleaving to the roof of my mouth and they, count, they pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them. He's, he's describing Calvary a thousand years ahead of time from the perspective of, of being the one on the cross. And, and I don't know how he did it. I don't know how the Holy Spirit did it. I think, I think David was taken in a vision and shown Calvary. And shown Calvary from a perspective, not where John and the disciples were with Mary watching from a distance. I think David was brought forward prophetically in a vision, put on that cross with Jesus to see it as it was happening. And then he writes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted that. The very words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Jesus recited that. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. I don't think he stopped with verse 1. My suspicion is Jesus recited the whole thing top to bottom. My suspicion. Can't prove it. But the attitude is certainly there because look what else happens here. So we have day and night. Remember Jesus had both on the cross. It fell, darkness fell for three hours while he was there on the cross. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So he's cycling doctrine. He's claiming promises. He's, he's reciting back what he learned from Joseph and what he learned that's been passed down to him in his Bible classes. That uh, there's yet to be a believer that's trusted in the Word of God and been disappointed for trusting in the Word of God. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Well, that's perfect agreement with with Isaiah 53, right? Despised, rejected. All who see me sneer at me. They wag the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now, Jesus didn't have to quote that on the cross because the crowd was doing it for him. Those that were crucifying him, they were quoting these very words. What a prophecy. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. You know, Satan was pushing that lie. Satan was tempting Him, saying, you know, if God loved you, He'd get you down from there. You know, doesn't God love you? Why are you up there? Get, come down from there. Okay, I suspect the devil was starting to catch on there a little bit too late and started to think maybe this is a mistake. Because <laughs> he kept taunting and saying, come off of there, come off of there, come off of there. And he didn't come down. How powerful is that? You 
Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. David could have made that statement. Jesus could have made that statement. They both did. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. You start studying Bashan and you're getting into some deep satanic things there. Um, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Remember, the adversary prowls about like a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is wax melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is a thousand years before the cross. This is before, by the way, in this time period, crucifixion is not invented. It's not a mode of execution. Persians would develop impaling on a stake. Romans would, would uh, refine it to uh, nailing of hands and feet and nailing on crosses and nailing on posts. But here's David. To my knowledge, they've yet, uh, archaeologists and historians, no one has yet found a, uh, an ancient Near Eastern, a Near Eastern ancient uh, civilization that used crucifixion at the time David wrote Psalm 22. In any event, I can count my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. All of that was fulfilled at the cross. But you, O Lord. (laughs) Remember, what's the difference between a lament and a complaint? (laughs) <laughs> right? A lamentation is biblical. Uh, um, you know, you don't want to be muttering. You don't want to be complaining. You don't want to be in rebellion. You don't want to turn this into a Mara uh, judgment. Lamentation means you take it back to the justice of God and you faith rest it. You leave it with Him and His wisdom and His provision. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. Answer me. And then what does he say? I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now I just read 21 verses of context so I could show you how awesome this is in verse 22. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. Even though is 21 verses of the cross before he can say, I will tell of your name to my brethren. So he's on the cross anticipating when he's going to do when this is done. (laughs) Anticipating what he's going to do when he's finished dying for us. He's going to live again. He's going to rise again. And he's going to ever live to make intercession for the saints. I will tell of your name to my brethren. This is the first of his three I wills that he utters here. But it comes in the midst of the cross. You think about that? You know, maybe you're daydreaming and the, the pastor's rambling. And so, uh, you know, you're, you're anticipating what you're going to do after church is over, right? Is it, is it Olive Garden or is it pluckers you know and so you're you're just thinking here's what i'm going to do when this pain is done as the case may be 
Now, if you're doing that in the midst of your execution, you know, if a prisoner in the state of Texas submits the menu request for his last meal, and then he submits a second request for breakfast the next day, (laughs) that wouldn't make any sense to us. But Jesus is on the cross, describing the cross, and talking about what he's going to do next. I will. He's making an I will statement in the midst of the cross. Isn't that beautiful? You know, Satan made five I will statements. Not in the midst of any suffering, not in the midst of any cross, not in the midst of any hardship or affliction. He made five I will statements basically uttered from the voice of pride and dissatisfaction. He went over five, of course. None of them are fulfilled. Jesus here is making these I will statements. And, and to me, they're just, they're beautiful. So I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he heard, when he cried to him for help, he heard. We saw this last week or the week before. And then in the days of his flesh, he cried out with piety. He was heard because of his piety. All right. So from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Uh, there's a whole lot more here. Anyway, read Psalm 22 when you get a chance. Take all the way down to verse 31 and you'll have some blessings there. We also, though, have Isaiah 8. We've got to consider Isaiah 8 because the author of Hebrews is blending these I will statements. The first of the I will statements comes from Psalm 22. The uh, second and third statements here come from Isaiah chapter 8. And boy, it's a good thing we studied Isaiah lately. There's so much Isaiah that comes out in Hebrews. Isaiah 8, it's really it's verses 17 and 18 that are spoken of here. Um, and uh, man, there's a large context for this one as well. Just notice, without reading uh, 9 through 16, just notice it's not a happy circumstance. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give, uh, and give ear all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. So uh, it's a difficult passage. It's tribulation. It's hardship what the Jewish people have to go through. And uh, aspects there. Um, devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. <laughs> Everything you try to do through your own devices, not going to work. You've got to accept God's plan. God's plan is the only plan. Get on board with His plan, and uh, that's where the blessings are. So, um, get over your conspiracy theories in verse 12, and uh, turn to the Lord. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your uh, your dread. He shall become a sanctuary both to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. Does that sound familiar? You know who this is? The stumbling stone? 
See, we got a prophecy with respect to Jesus as the stumbling stone. And this is what the author of Hebrews is going to adapt. So he takes Psalm 22, I will say your name, I will call you my brethren. And now in this context, even though they're stumbling, even though they're a snare, even though they're a trap, they've got a future. So uh, verse 15 says, many will stumble over them. They will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. And so we have, now this is Isaiah making this statement about I will wait, I will look, but he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord is the one who will wait and who will look. In a sense, this is what Jesus has been doing since he ascended to the Father's right hand waiting for the enemies to be made a footstool, waiting on the Father and the Father's good pleasure. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And this is what He blends. He blends the, the uh, promise in in. Psalm 22 with the promise in Isaiah 8, specifically not only with brethren, but also with children. These are the contexts that he's blending, that he's synthesizing together for our study today in Hebrews chapter 2. So I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And it goes on. There's Again, there's a larger context for this. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? <laughs> should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? You know, and Israel's going to have to deal with this. In the coming tribulation, there's going to be many false cries. There's going to be many false prophets. There's going to be all kinds of things they could turn to, and many of them do. But some are going to turn to the living God. And they're going to call upon the name of the Lord so as to be saved. And this is uh, such an amazing, to, to recognize how this is going to happen, to recognize what it takes. It takes hell on earth to humble the Jewish people, whereby they can have their national repentance, whereby they can reject all that idolatry, whereby they can look upon him whom they pierced. Because not only do they have to call out upon the Lord they've been rejecting all this time, they have to call upon the, the Christ that they crucified. And they will. And they will. And so we have this, uh, this synthesis, and this is interesting. And so what we have here is interesting that we have the children. The children that I'm equating with the joy set before him. The children from Isaiah 8.18, also Isaiah 53 in verse 10. The children that are promised. The joy set before him is the children whom God has given him. So he says, I'm not waiting alone. I'm not waiting alone. When he was on the cross, he was alone. But now while he's waiting on the Father, he's not alone. There are children. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And so we see the joy that's set before him. What does he have to look forward to? What is it that Jesus is looking forward to? There's a lot that he's got in front of him, starting when the trumpet sounds, starting with snatching us up into the air, starting with calling his bride back to glory. 
Okay, beyond that, wedding supper, wedding feast, beyond that, Armageddon, right? Second advent, conquering, ruling with a rod of iron, a thousand years of ruling in the midst of your enemies. And then what? New heavens and new earth. A thousand years of ruling over children. All right, no more enemies, no more death, no more those who hate you, but a thousand generations of those who love you and what Jesus has to look forward to. This is all of this combined, all of this together in the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated now at the Father's right hand. There's a promise of brethren, there's a promise of children. By the way, Isaiah 8.18 is not by itself in terms of children whom the Lord has given me. There's Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Isaiah 53, this whole chapter here is centering on the person of Christ as the spotless lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the one rejected by his brethren. And uh, everything that he submitted to in his first advent is described here. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was not a good-looking guy. And he was not, you know, a, would not do well in American politics today in, uh, in his personal appearance and in his bearing and, and all the rest. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, intimate with grief. You know, if, you're, if, you're, if your life is as difficult as that, there's consequences there's consequences, and I'm sure it was uh, written in, uh, in those lines on his face. And uh, like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. In other words, if you looked at him, you said, oh, that's not somebody I want to know. And yet here it is. We saw some of these verses a couple of weeks ago in substitutionary atonement because it was for our suffering. He carried our sorrows, our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions. There's that piercing again. By now we're up to 700 B.C. for the writing of Isaiah. We're still uh, pre-Persian. And yet there's piercing. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. But remember, he has to be volitionally uh, willing to do this. And that's what verse 10 communicates. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. God the Father was pleased in making God the Son, making Jesus Christ the sacrificial lamb. However, there's an if. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. If he would render himself. He is the closest of the kinsmen, but he has to be willing to do it. If he would render himself. Remember, knucklehead wouldn't do it, so Boaz did it. If Jesus doesn't do it, who's on deck? Nobody. (laughs) Nobody. There is no other sinless, perfect God-man that can be the Redeemer. It's only Jesus Christ. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. There they are, promised children. Just like Isaiah 8, 
children again coming up here in Isaiah 53. He will see his offspring. His offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. By the way, millennium doesn't fulfill that. It's the fullness of time after the millennium. It's the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul. Why was it proper? Why was it fitting? This is what qualified him to be the redeemer or the sanctifier. Here it's justify. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God the Father is not satisfied that Jesus is a qualified sanctifier until he endures this anguish, until he endures this suffering. As a result, he will see it and be satisfied. This is the basis or the grounds for propitiation. Jesus goes to the cross and he does the work of justification. He is the justifier. But the grounds for the Father accepting him as a justifier comes to this. It comes to what he learns in his sufferings by his knowledge by his knowledge through the knowledge that his suffering instructed him in by his knowledge the righteous one my servant will justify the many so he who sanctifies and he who and those that are sanctified are all from one father my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities so this is the promise and all of this is caught up into who we are in Christ. And, and hallelujah that Jesus accepted all of this, that he endured all this, that he was willing. He was qualified and he was willing even though it was fitting for the author of our salvation to be perfected through sufferings. If he does not go through the sufferings, he can't be the justifier. He, can't, he can bring himself to glory by what he's earned and deserved, but to bring many sons to glory... To bring you and me there, he has to identify with us. He has to learn through this suffering. If he doesn't, then the Father's not satisfied that he's the justifier. All right. Which is why humanity is required. Verses 14 and 15. 14 and 15. And so, let's see, yeah, we passed through verse 12 and 13 already. Uh, we read them from the Old Testament. So both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, saying, I will put my trust in him. And again, saying, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. These are the snippets that he is synthesizing for us from Psalm 22, from Isaiah 8.17 and 8.18. I will put my trust in him. That's after the cross. I will put my trust in him. See, we don't, faith doesn't end when we finish salvation. We continue to walk by faith. Jesus is going to walk by faith throughout the whole millennial kingdom, trusting in the Father. Right up until the day that fire comes down out of heaven and destroys the Gog-Magog revolution, Jesus is still walking by faith in the millennial kingdom. He and the children. All right. Therefore, 
since the children share in flesh and blood. Reverse that, by the way. It's blood and flesh in the Greek. It's just modern English translators uh, don't like the expression blood and flesh because our expression is always flesh and blood. It's the way it's been. It's the way they're going to keep it, even if the Greek text says blood and flesh. You know, it's like evening and morning, day one. Okay? It's in the order God wants it, so accept it in that order. It's blood and flesh. And, and doctrinally, start to thrive over the order of blood and flesh. Because His blood is what redeemed us, but His flesh is the veil we pass through. We enter into the Holy of Holies because of the blood that He shed and because of His flesh. It's a, it's that tandem in that order is, uh, is important. All right, since the children share in blood and flesh, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. And this is fun, and for beginning Greek students you're going to really love the, uh, the perfect tense for humanity's humanity and the aorist tense for Jesus partaking. Okay? So since humanity shares as a, on a fellowship, this is Koinonia, we have a, a sharing, but it's perfect tense. Ever since Adam and Eve, the realm of humanity has been what? Blood and flesh. Humanity, okay? Adam became a living soul because that's the way God designed it. The angels were dismissive, mocking, laughing, fallen angels thought it was hideous. And yet here we are, blood and flesh, and the children partake in blood and flesh. That's what we've always done. So Jesus did likewise. He himself likewise also partook of the same. That's an aorist tense. His first advent, thought of on a punctiliar basis, thought of in totality, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that, that he partook of humanity, true humanity in the flesh of that, in the, in the body. Okay, That is why it says, a body thou hast prepared for me. I believe he already had his human spirit, right? But a body thou hast prepared for me, he entered into that body and he partook of blood and flesh. Why? So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Now, I don't know how long, I mean, we're right up, I've got 10 minutes remaining, okay? And you had an extra hour of sleep, so I probably can keep you long. <laughs> Again, you're back to that Olive Gardner Pluckers thing again. <laughs> um, the uh, <laughs> let's get past the cross for a moment. He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. What was he accomplishing on the cross? Multiple things that he was accomplishing on the cross. And um, including, by the way, why did he physically die? Why did he go in the grave for the three days? Why did he rise again? What did that achieve? And were there different things achieved by his spiritual death from what he achieved in his physical death and resurrection? And I believe if you never consider that as even a possibility, then maybe uh, there's additional looks you need to take at Hebrews and additional looks you need to take at uh, the gospel record of his death. 
okay? Because I've asked this question as well, and, and a lot of times I, I throw out questions as, as rhetorical and I don't answer them. Does that bug you? All right. And often it's because I'm not content with my own answer yet. Um, but Jesus said it is finished. To tell us die, it is finished. The work of redemption was done. And he, as a priest, he had ministered everything that needed to be ministered for our sin. And he said, it is finished. Why then does he need to physically die? Why doesn't he just, he took up his spiritual life already. He had authority to lay it down. He had authority to take it up again. He'd already taken it back up again. He was spiritually alive when he said, die." So why not then just, you know, come flying off that cross like, you know, nobody's business, okay? Like a superhero or something, you know. I don't want to diminish the glory of Christ by calling him Superman or some kind of a comic book character. But, you know, he said to Telesta, it is finished. If it was me, I would have just come springing off that cross and said, all right, Lord, enough of that now. I'd have been like the disciples in Acts chapter 1 saying, all right, Jesus, man, you put us through all that. Now are you finally bringing about the kingdom? Can we, can we go into the kingdom now? The, the disciples were literally, you know, kind of put out with what the, Jesus had put them through that whole time. And in a, a human viewpoint, like I'm expressing here, could have done the same thing on the cross. And said, all right, it is finished, let's get to the kingdom now. And just come off that cross, start killing all the, the unbelievers right there in front of you, the ones that put you on the cross, right? Go conquer Rome. All the stuff, usher in the kingdom right there. But no, the plan of God, he says, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and he breathed his last. He delivered up his human spirit out of that body of flesh. So because the children participate in flesh and blood, we share in flesh and blood. And what are the, our blood and flesh, what are the blood and flesh experiences that we all have in common? It includes physical death. Okay? And so this is one aspect of physical, of, of uh, blood and flesh he had not experienced yet. But we share in it, so so did he. He himself also partook of the same through death. But he's going to accomplish something in it. And he's going to come back. He's going to be sown in weakness, raised in power, sown uh, in dishonor, raised in glory. Everything that you can read out there in, in 1 Corinthians 15. That he might, uh, and it's going to have... Uh, Power over the devil here. And we got and the, the Diabolos is the devil, a slanderer. And, and there's a power that Satan has, all right? It's a power that Satan has through the human fear of death. And uh, Jesus just totally breaks it. He puts us on an eternal life basis whereby matters of life and death are beside the point. We've been studying that in, in Philippians. We get to be a redeemed people that are a, a heavenly citizenship that are already possessors of eternal life so that what kind of fear does, can Satan scare us with physical death? Are you kidding? That's supposed to scare me? Okay. <laughs> I have eternal life in Christ. That doesn't scare me. That's all you've got? The devil's a, a, a disarmed foe. The rulers and authorities are disarmed. The only thing they can hurt you with is the weapons you give them. We're, we're very... It's kind of human to go ahead and rearm the, the enemy that, that Jesus disarmed. We love to give him ammunition. Here, hurt me with this. Here, hurt me with this. And 
I'm going to go back to more carnality again. Hurt me some more. How, how stupid is that? But that's what we do in our carnality. Jesus has disarmed them and we give them all the weapons back. As we don't take advantage of the attitude we're supposed to have in Christ. So, it's, uh, it is interesting. Humanity's Adamic existence was and is a shared blood and flesh existence. Okay? And it's a, it's a sharing that's spoken of in the perfect tense. Past completed action, present ongoing results. The nature of Adamic humanity is uh, we were all in Adam as Adam sinned and then through procreation, here we all came. And we're all here. Every last one of us descended from Adam and Eve. Theologically, that's critical. And which is part of why we absolutely reject anything, uh, you know, Darwinian and good to you and all that, that other stuff. Okay? Because if we're not in Adam, then we can't be saved in Christ. Theologically. The whole plan of salvation requires universal condemnation in Adam so that the last Adam can redeem us. Humanity's Adamic existence was and is a shared blood and flesh existence. So Jesus Christ became a partaker of that blood and flesh existence. He didn't, it wasn't the angel of the Lord that went to the cross. It wasn't the burning bush that went to the cross. It wasn't the pillar of fire that went to the cross. Every form Jesus took before the virgin birth, all those Christophanies of, of Jesus before the, the pregnant virgin, none of those went to the cross. It was blood and flesh that went to the cross. Anyway, we'll come back to this next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for truth. And I thank you for the way you designed truth. That, Father, you gave us an Old Testament and a New Testament. You gave us Psalms. You gave us prophets. You gave us law. You spoke to the fathers in many portions and in many ways. But in, these, in the last of these days, you spoke to us in your Son. And Father, I thank you for his message. I thank you that he quotes those earlier messages and demonstrates their fulfillment in him. And I pray, Father, too, that we would be like him in walking by faith and studying to show ourselves approved and in, uh, in exhibiting the fulfillment of what you have promised. Father, thank you for the position that we have in Christ. Thank you for all that you've done, not only on our behalf, but then placing us in Christ, Father. This privilege is beyond anything we could ask or think. And the more we study, the more we, we are humbled because it's just, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's, it's more and more and more and more again. You give and you give and you give and you give. And what we see in the church age, Father, is only the down payment. This is the down payment of what we will have in glory. So, Father, our prayer today is to increase our capacity to identify what you've supplied, increase our capacity to give thanks. This is our Thanksgiving month, Father. As a nation, we give thanks. But we, as your people, want to give thanks all day, every day, more and more as we recognize all that you have done on our behalf. 
I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to close with our closing hymn.